Wake up. Freedom's on the rise. Welcome back to Freedom's Rising. You are listening to episode 31 today on July 26th, 2022. We are in the BioSci War Barrage, part 5. Wake up. Freedom's on the rise. And you are participating in the rise of freedom by being an active listener to this show. I'm your host, Tyler Bloyer from tylerbloyer.com, where you can find the archives, go through the BioSciWar series. Each episode links to a a list of episodes we've done previously on the BioSciWar, starting back with Getting Ready for Human 2.0 back in early 2021, and up to now, where we're Recording today, episode 31 of Freedom's Rising, which is part five of the War Barrage. Now, in the barrage, what we're doing is sort of going into the foxhole, digging it out, clearing out things, you know, not necessarily organizing everything in perfect order or putting things uh, in easily digestible format, but rather covering it from a wide array of information and going through topics. Uh, today, we're going to be sticking on to things that are a little bit more relevant to things that are happening now and that we also finished, uh, we also discussed in the last episode. But uh, again, welcome to today's show. Uh, This is the white pill optimism uh, here with freedoms rising. And what we're doing is building that steam. And we're hoping that freedom is rising, right? But it's not a guaranteed thing. It's a choice. We have to actually make that happen in our lives and help other people understand the philosophy of freedom and put out the message. Now, the bio war has to do with that because we need to understand more aspects of our reality in order to protect ourselves, uh, implant the neural, uh, viral, antivirus software, so to say, and take in the information that's required to understand more about what's happening in our current paradigm and the bio-psi war. Now, the psychological aspects of that we have gone into in parts. We do kind of focus heavily more on the bio part, and uh, there's a lot of evidence and things out there that are interesting to read into, but there's also psychological components that we need to be aware of in the bio-psi war and how we might be being manipulated or how we might be intentionally confused and propagandized in order to go along with certain agendas that are also happening in the world, right? It's not just to say that none of it's real and that it's all psychological and there's nothing really going on. Again, our premise, my premise here is that there's actually, you know, a physical attack. There's a physical assault going on. There's releases of viruses happening and uh, that's being used as part of the bio in the bio psi war. But then there's also the psychological components, the media manipulation, the known liars that continue to manipulate and lie to us through their platforms of uh, what are essentially controlled by a very few people in the world who are part of sort of an elite class, right, of groups and 
steering organizations that use those platforms to push forward agendas, not to get out the truth, not to get, not to help you understand what's going on in reality, but to manipulate you into believing, going along, you know, it further entrenches you, entrenches you into the group think dynamics and, you know, the, the, uh, general consensus and the group think aspects and uh, putting people into the box of what's being let out in these limited hangouts and controlled narratives that really are just, again, put forward to make you act and think a certain way. That's what the news media outlets are. That's what the mainstream media, the legacy media is used to do. It's not used as a platform for truth and trying to expose the lies and trying to get at the bottom of things. It's playing uh, partisan politics and uh, a, a false left-right paradigm that's constantly uh, just pounded on. And you got people like the uh, Rhodes Scholar, Rachel Maddow up there, you know, again, just part of the overall agenda. I mean, why do you think she was invited over to Oxford? Why do you think she went through the Rhodes Scholarship Program and now is a prominent figure in the media uh, hierarchy? It's because she 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 has the message because she knows the agenda because she's part of the club right so that she's allowed to be out there and uh, spewing her nonsense because she's overall uh, playing towards and a big part of uh, the Rhodesian worldview of uh, bringing America back under the heel of the British Empire. And that's more simplified terms, but today it's more of a conglomerate and a hybrid of what was the British Empire and uh, America really just being another leg of that. And uh, it's questionable whether you could say we are completely back under the control of th those older systems and the way that they've modernized. And it would be, you know, an interesting investigation in itself. But today we're going to get back into more of the monkeypox, monkeypox, uh, monkey business. And we're going to let uh, Dan Dix come back and give us his newest update here in a minute. But, uh, you know, I just want to know that uh, if everyone out there is investing in latex, I think uh actually you know if we're if we were really serious we'd be wearing full blown latex suits with our own filtered air right and like a uh, laboratory to like go to the bathroom in and never take the suit off i mean some of this stuff like i've joked around a lot i joke around but a lot of that last year i was joking around saying you know if everybody was really aware of what's going on out there they wouldn't just be wearing masks they'd be wearing full blood full body latex suits you know like the biohazard suits that you see the guys wearing like when uh in that movie et when they go and <laughs> like they put like big uh plastic tubes that go into the house and they're like really treating it like a biohazard situation I, I mean if it seems like doing this research and and understanding what i understand and uh i don't want to live in fear i i don't want to be someone who's just constantly fearful of everything and fearful of the environment i think that's part of the trick of all this is to get us afraid of nature right big bad nature and nature's always coming to get us and there's these viruses that can just jump out of the bats and right into humans and jump out of monkeys and raccoons 
and you never know what's going to get you and creep right around the corner. That's another, that's part of the Psy War for sure, to make you think that nature's against you and that it's bad and it's evil and, uh, you know, you have to be scared of, of that nature. And uh, a psychological component of that is even being scared of our very own nature and not understanding more about, you know, our natural place in the world. And then just buying into the fear, the fear, the fear. And we always have to, you know, jump into whatever they're trying to get us to do. There's a new vaccine. Let's take it. Let's let's jump on this new medical device and just jab it into our arm because I'm so scared. I can't think for myself. I can't handle any, uh, you know, information that goes counter narrative to the big group think and dynamic. And it's all just too much. So I just have to believe the science. Right. And again, I mean, these these main platforms that are pumping out the information aren't about the science. They're not about the truth. They're not about helping you. They're about manipulating you. They're about getting you, again, to think a certain way and act a certain way. And it's it's definitely not something, and, you know, when you, again, we have to go back to, well, then everybody would have to be in on it. And people's complete misunderstanding of the hierarchy of the world and uh, the way the narratives come down through that. So, you know, I joke around, but it's something of like, you know, if we are really serious about stopping these things and what, with the aerosolization and the hyper, uh, the gain of function that is being done on some of these things and making these chimeric entities and biological weapons and threats and making them more virulent uh, to people and then you know, now they're out there, or they leaked out there or whatever. Uh, you know, I don't think that just wearing a mask is going to stop that. I don't think that people that say masks don't work at all. I mean, I think that's, you're jumping way over on the other side and saying they don't work at all. And and we don't necessarily have the direct evidence to substantiate those claims. Uh, we, pe- people like in the freedom or truth community, and I, I'm not a mask wearer myself. I've never actually uh, throughout the whole pandemic, put on a mask for any reason, and re- really refuse to do so because I'm more about keeping it a choice and having people need to have a choice in the matter and uh, the freedom to choose what to put on their body or what goes in their body. And even if something is effective in you know stopping a virus or uh, at making your immune system stronger against viruses, people should still have the freedom of choice over what happens with their body. And that's the principle that I find more important than even protecting myself against what might be out there. So I'm joking about wearing the full body latex suits. I mean, if a person wanted to do that, they should be allowed to do that. And they, you know, no one should stop them from doing that either. But then we also shouldn't be forced into, you know, wearing a mask or taking a, a a medical, uh, a medical intervention or a, a pharmaceutical product to the point where we don't have a choice in the matter, where we're being threatened by our employer. Uh, you know, these are all things that I find more important that people remain free and have the choice versus, you know, what what might be even in the best interest of the group, because the group never has the individual's best interest in mind. You know, the group is, how often is the group wrong. I mean, all the time, every time, right? How often is the the greater good? Well, the the group is never good. The group is always antithetical to freedom and individual rights. And so I find those 
principles more important to be able to practice and exercise our freedom versus, you know, just doing things to get by or get through or we'll get back to the new normal. And as we can see today, uh, you know, and, and again, Francis Boyle in the last episode made some claims and said that monkeypox is a bioweapon and the investigation needs to substantiate those claims. We'll be going through grammar today mainly. Uh, but what we're going to start with here is getting back to Dan Dix, who we played last episode, a clip from him in May called March 2021 Monkeypox Exercise Predicts 3B Cases Will with 270 Million Dead. Who Calls for Emergency Meeting? Right. So that's their models. They they created the model with that. We'll be talking about that exercise a little bit later. And then they predict uh no pun intended there they predict what's going to happen and then the who can react to that and we'll see how that's going today but in the more recent episode uh from Dan on that it was called who declares monkeypox a global health emergency here's what you need to know so let's get to that clip and then I'll come back and we'll continue on with the episode I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. Although I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern, for the moment, this is an outbreak that's concentrated among men who have sex with men, especially those with multiple sexual partners. Stigma and discrimination can be as dangerous as any virus. But with the tools we have right now, we can stop transmission and bring this outbreak under control. This is Dan Dix here reporting for Press for Truth. With breaking news, the World Health Organization has just declared monkeypox to be a global health emergency. This is the highest alarm it can possibly sound because of its extraordinary spread to more than 70 countries. Now, what I would say is extraordinary here is the idea that the World Health Organization could call this a global health emergency when there has literally been zero deaths outside of Africa. Ladies and gentlemen, let me repeat that. Zero deaths outside of Africa. It's like I said here on Twitter. With zero deaths outside of Africa, how can the WHO declare monkeypox to be a global health emergency? Do people really think that they can be trusted anymore? I mean, here it is. Five deaths in total right now, ladies and gentlemen. And as we see here, those five deaths have been reported in African nations. Yet, here it is from the horse's mouth, Dr. Tedros, in light of the evolving monkeypox outbreak with over 16,000 reported cases from 75 countries and territories I reconvened the emergency committee, and based on international health regulations criteria, I decided to declare this outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. He says the monkeypox outbreak has spread around the world rapidly uh, through new modes of transmission, about which we understand too little, and here's my set of recommendations for the countries, and we'll look at that a little bit later, but here, for the moment, this monkeypox outbreak is concentrated among men who have sex with men, especially those with multiple sexual partners. That means that this is an outbreak that can be stopped with the right strategies in the right groups. Now, this has brought about a lot of controversy, this idea that this is happening within uh, the gay community and men who have sex with men, and I just want to briefly uh, address this 
terminology, okay? This is coming from the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, as you see here, it says, to date, the current spread has disproportionately affected men who are gay or bisexual and other men who have sex with men. And it's like, uh, wait a minute. Okay, so you have a category here that says this is going to affect gay men or bisexual men and other men who have sex with men. It's like, wait a minute. I thought, I thought men who have sex with men are gay. But here's the crazy part about all of this, guys. In this insanely crazy uh, uh, world of this transgender agenda and transgenderism, and transgender ideology seeping its way into society, this is what it's all about. Now, let me tell you a quick little story. I was talking to this kid once. He was telling me about his high school experience, you know, saying he had a pretty good time in high school. He had not a lot of friends, but the ones he had were pretty close. Um, he had a girlfriend. He said, you know, she was great. He was with her a couple of couple of years. They enjoyed the same music. They liked the same events. It was, you know, it was great. She had great hair. Uh, she had a penis. Uh, she wore really good clothes, had great fashion sense. And I was like, what, uh, hang on, what was that last part you just said there? And, and rather than kind of hone in on that, I just I wanted to f figure out if this kid was, was gay or not, essentially. And in not so many words, I asked him that. And he said, no, 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 no I'm not gay. He's like, I, I don't have a problem with anybody who is. You know, that's fine. Like, people can do what they want. But no, 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 I'm, I'm not gay. So I'm like, oh, okay, you had sexual relations with your girlfriend uh, in high school? He's like, yeah, of course, <laughs> we were together a couple of years. And it's like, hmm, interesting. So that's where this is coming from, this, this, this idea uh, that uh, it might be happening with gay people, might be bisexual, or just men who have sex with men. Um, that's where this terminology comes from. It's this insane transgender ideology which is just mind-boggling that we're here at a point. But anyways, I, I'm getting a little off, off track. The point today is, ladies and gentlemen, move over, COVID-1984. Monkeypox is the new fear factor in town. I put that out on May 19th, 2022, and I followed it up the very next day with this one. March 2021 monkeypox exercise predicts 3 billion cases with 270 million dead. As the WHO calls for emergency meeting, they are telling us exactly what they're going to do, and what's going to happen. So we're going to talk about all of that in this video and much more, guys. But before we do, I'd ask that you check me out here at subscribestar.com slash pressfortruth. This is like a Patreon alternative um, since I have been kicked off of Patreon. As you can see here, they say my page is under review as they're currently reviewing it. No, that just means I, I'm out. I've, I've been kicked out, and uh, they're not going to allow me back in. I had over 300 people here contributing on a monthly reoccurring contribution basis, and uh, so far, only about 94 of you have um, uh, migrated on over to Subscribestar. So I'm hoping we can get that number up today, guys. If you do appreciate my efforts to bring you this information, please check the links in the description below on where, whatever platform you happen to be watching this video on. All right, let's jump right into it. Uh, the World Health Organization has just declared monkeypox outbreak to be a global health emergency, the highest alarm it can sound following an extraordinary spread to more than 70 countries. Um... WHO Director Tedros made the decision uh, to issue the declaration despite a lack of consensus amongst experts serving on the UN National uh, UN Health Agency's Emergency Committee. It was the first time a chief of the UN Health Agency has ever taken such an action. So what what is the point of having a, an advisory committee and a panel who voted, by the way, nine to six against declaring this as a global health emergency, only for him to say, 
you know what? I, I'm sorry I asked. That that wasn't the right answer. Just uh, never mind, guys. Uh, forget I said anything. I'm just going to go ahead and do what I was going to do anyways and declare this a global health emergency. I mean, this is just insane. Um, <laughs> but yeah, here we are. Um, we have an outbreak that has spread around the world rapidly through new modes of transmission, uh, about which we understand too little, and which meets the criteria in the international health regulations. Um, says it's not only been it hasn't been easy or straightforward. There are divergent views among the members of the committee. Uh, yet he still went ahead and just declared it what it is because here the health agency's declaration could spur further investment in treating the once rare disease and also worsen the scramble for scarce vaccines. And we know that uh, this is what's coming down the pike as people's fears of COVID-1984 is waning and they're realizing that the vaccines are doing nothing because people like quadruple vax Biden, for example, are still contracting the virus. So the move has to, as I said here, shift the fear state from COVID to monkeypox and uh, that's precisely uh, what they're doing now. As you see here, the WHO previously declared emergencies for public health crises, such as COVID-1984, the 2014 Ebola outbreak, Zika virus, and I've covered all of these things, guys. And interestingly enough, with this 2014 Ebola outbreak, as you see here, I put this one out in 2014, um, Ebola fear-mongering, and I said, problem, Ebola virus. Uh, the reaction my symptoms could be Ebola, so do something about this for me. Solution, uh, vaccines, government control, and military intervention. And interestingly enough, guys, if you actually watch that and you switch out the word Ebola for COVID-1984, <laughs> I think you may be pleasantly uh, surprised. So if you haven't seen that one, it's like almost nine years old. Uh, go check it out. I'll put a link in the description uh, below. But here's the, 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 the crazy part about all of this, guys. Um, this is a, a report that was put out in November of 2021 titled Strengthening Global Systems to Prevent and Respond to High-Consequence Biological Threats, right? And this is a, a, a an exercise, a scenario that was imagined. Um, as we see here, here's a summary. Uh, this is a fictional exercise, a scenario portraying a deadly global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox that ends up resulting in more than 3 billion cases and 270 million fatalities worldwide. So in this fictional scenario, and may I remind you about Event 201, which predicted COVID-1984 to a T, and then a few months later it all started coming out exactly as that report outlined. Well, now we have this new report, and it has suggestions for how to deal with this 3 billion case, 270 million fatality situation, and here's the report's findings and recommendations. And interestingly enough, as we go back to the horse's mouth, and we, he says here, here is my sets of recommendations for the countries. This was only posted a couple of hours ago, and uh, here it is, his recommendations to everyone. And just look how similar all of this is. Temporary recommendations issued by who? Um, you know, activate or establish health and multi-sectoral coordination mechanisms, for example. And we go back to, what, what do they have? Um, we have gaps in national level preparedness. We, we have to bolster international systems uh, for risk assessment, warnings, and investigation of outbreaks. Pretty similar. Um, plan for and implement 
uh, interventions to avoid the stigmatization and discriminization of indivi individuals, establish and intensify epidemiological disease surveillance, including access to reliable, affordable, and accurate diagnostic tests. And we see things here, develop and inst institute national level triggers for early preventive uh, pr proactive pandemic response, establish an international entity de dedicated to reducing emergency biological risks associated with rapid technology advances. Do you, are you guys seeing these similarities? So it's like, you know, the World Health Organization is just taking a, a, a cue directly um, from this uh, 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 report. Uh, by NTI, as we see here in March, NTI partnered with the Munich Security Conference to conduct this tabletop exercise on reducing high-consequence biological threats. So it's important that we uh, look at these these drills, these exercises, these scenarios, because as I said, uh, we followed that before, and it all came to a T, and now uh, it, it looks like <laughs> they're pulling the trigger here on this, uh, the idea that it's time to shift focuses from COVID to monkeypox. But this is where we need to shift our focus as well, ladies and gentlemen, is to, first of all, turn that TV off, uh, turn those radios off, crumple up those newspapers that are just pumping you with propaganda and fear and, uh, and, and really just continuing to uh, uh, perpetually keep this thing going. Uh, that, that's how it works. Um, but what we need to be focusing on, rather than all those distractions is how to become self-sustainable in our own lives, not relying on the government or the banks or even the grocery stores moving forward. And this is one of the things I've been personally focusing on the most in my life. I, I don't have this just yet. I, I'm, I'm working on it. I can't wait until I have this. But this is one of the most important things that I'm working on outside of uh, a press for truth to make this a reality for myself. And I really hope that you guys are working on a similar thing. Because at this stage in the game, we can't be looking to the government to solve the problems that are created by the government. We can't be looking to the banks to, you know, bail us out of this fiat debt-based system that we're all born into. What we have to do is take the responsibility uh, 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 amongst ourselves um, to live the life that we want to live. And the only way to do that right now moving forward is to work towards having yourself a self-sustainable garden so you don't have to rely on getting your food from the grocery stores and you don't have to rely on money from the banks and you don't have to rely on support from the government. This is the one true thing that they fear the most is an independent, strong uh, uh, individual who um, is capable of uh, providing f for himself and is not looking to the nanny state to, uh, to do that for him. Um, so I just want to encourage you guys to, uh, it, it, like I said, if you're not actively working towards this, uh, you're two steps behind right now, and uh, just just wanted to uh, put that out there. Um, so that that here it is, guys. They just declared it to be a global health emergency. I tried to warn about this coming a couple of months ago, but uh, here we are. Nonetheless, um, the focus now is to get yourself onto that um, self-sustainable lifestyle. Um, before before this gets, uh, you know, before that becomes pretty much impossible. I want to remind you guys to check me out at um, subscribestar.com slash pressfortruth. Once again, if you do appreciate my efforts to bring you this information, I have been kicked off Patreon. So um, if, you, uh, if you do appreciate my efforts and you want to help, um, you know, supplement that source of income that was taken away from me at the blink of a, 
of an eye at the snap of a finger. Uh, you can do so by checking out the links in the description below. As I said, depending on whatever platform you happen to be watching this on, whether it's on BitChute or Odyssey or Minds or Float or Rumble or you know Bastion or Hive or maybe even YouTube, wherever you happen to be watching this video, check the links in the description below to find out how you can uh, support my efforts and to where you can do your due diligence and do all the sources for this video that I posted here today. So that's all for it today, uh, my friends. I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me once again. Don't forget to click that thumbs up button, share this video, and stay tuned. We're going to have more video reports coming soon. This is Dan Dix reporting for Press for Truth. We all want truth. The truth will set you free. I want to say thank you to Dan Dix for creating the media that he does. Dan Dix at Press for Truth. I know that there's some people out there that are like, oh, Dan Dix is just fear porn and he's just trying to put out information to scare you and to get more clicks and likes. But again, I mean, if we go back to who we can depend on to put out accurate information, I think someone like Dan Dix is actually trying to put out accurate information and is not trying to just... Fearmonger. I mean, obviously, there's a way to get people's attention with headlines and uh, clickbait and the way that, you know, you might position something and, uh, you know, there's there's a marketing technique to that, too. And if if we are to try to spread the information out further, sometimes those techniques are good. I don't think we should intentionally just scare people and then leave them with nothing to go on and just use fear. Uh, or sensationalize something that's not really needing to be sensationalized. So what we need to do today is go back to just getting through some grammar, right? Uh, the the first process in the trivium method is to collect grammar on a, on a piece of data, on something that you're trying to find out more about. So on the monkeypox in particular, and that whole situation, we should collect more data. Now we saw that, or we heard rather, that the who has announced this as a global emergency, a global health emergency. And I have here in front of me a fact sheet from Biden and Harris administration's monkeypox outbreak response from June 28th of 2022. This is from the whitehouse.gov. And it says, For years, the United States has invested in research on monkeypox and in tools to effectively respond to the disease. Monkeypox is a virus that is generally spread through close or intimate contact with symptoms that include a rash and fever. It is much less transmissible than fast-spreading respiratory diseases like COVID-19, and this outbreak has not caused any deaths in the United States. The virus, however, is spreading in the United States and globally and requires a comprehensive response from federal, state, local, and international governments and communities. Since the first United States case was confirmed on May 18th, President Biden has taken critical actions to make vaccines, testing, and treatments available to those who need them as part of the whole-of-government monkeypox outbreak response. Today, the Biden-Harris administration announced the first phase of its national monkeypox vaccine strategy a critical part of its monkeypox outbreak response. The vaccine strategy will help immediately address the spread of the virus, providing vaccines across the country to individuals at high risk. 
This phase of the strategy aims to rapidly deploy vaccines in the most affected communities to mitigate the spread of the disease. Okay, so there's then, you know, more to that article. Obviously, that's quite a, there's quite a bit to that. Um, let's see, let's... Uh, the uh, something that Dan Dix talked a little bit about here. Let's see what this section says here. The administration has launched. The administration has launched a robust community and stakeholder engagement strategy. Oh, great! The stakeholders are in on it. The most effective response to infectious disease outbreaks is a community-based response. The Biden-Harris administration, communicating with healthcare providers, public health officials, and communities on a daily basis to raise awareness of the monkeypox outbreak and educate the public and local community leaders about what the virus is and how it is transmitted and with populations which populations are most at risk for the virus as part of its robust engagement strategy the administration is facilitating access to vaccines treatments and tests the administration will also continue to engage directly with leaders and stakeholders in the LGBTQI plus community to work together to prevent any combat stigma and bias, uh, to prevent and combat stigma and bias and promote testing and vaccines, vaccine access and health equity for LGBTQI plus communities. Through its comprehensive stakeholder engagement strategy, the administration is also creating a critical feedback loop, learning from the experiences of the most at risk and responding based on their insights and needs. So, it goes into a little bit about what Dan was talking about, like with the transmission being with gay men who have sex with other men, and I'm not sure what to think about that specific aspect yet. I mean, is this thing aerosolized? Are we talking about something that has to have human-to-human contact or contact with, like, uh, blood of a person in order to get it? Is that why they're saying that? Part of me wants to jump and say, well, it's part of the psy war, because then if you're questioning this, you're also sort of attacking the gay community by saying that something isn't as serious or as real as they might be saying, oh, well, you must not care about the gay community. You know, that could be part of why they're putting that out there. Or maybe the scientific information really just uh, shows that this is the case. Uh, But again, we're we're not going to just continue to read the propaganda here from the Biden White House. I think part of their response is also just in preparedness for the global response. And so they acted like Biden and Harris is directing everything here. Uh, I doubt they're directing anything at all, period, and don't even know what the fuck they're doing uh, half the time. I mean, Biden's like shaking hands with people that are not there and doing these kinds of things. I doubt he's like heading up committees that are really, you know, the task force that's going to take this on. Uh, But if we go to the World Health Organization site, they have a May 19th, 2022 publication on monkeypox and the key facts. So it says in the key facts from the WHO, and we're just, again, we're getting some grammar down here. We're just trying to understand more, you know, about what they're saying and, you know, what this monkeypox thing might be. So it says, vaccines, this is the key facts, vaccines used 
during the smallpox eradication program also provided protection against monkeypox. Newer vaccines have been developed, of which one has been approved for prevention of monkeypox. Monkeypox is caused by a monkeypox virus, a member of the orthopox virus uh, genus of family of the family Poxviridae. Monkeypox is usually a self-limited disease with the symptom lasting two to four weeks. Severe cases can occur. In recent times, the case fatality ratio has been around three to six percent. Monkeypox is transmitted to humans through close contact with an infected person or animal or with materials contaminated with the virus. Monkeypox virus is transmitted from one person to another by close contact with lesions, body fluids, respiratory droplets, and contaminated materials such as bedding. So respiratory droplets. So this is, uh, you know, is this aerosolized then? Is this something that can travel through the air in these respiratory droplets or just like spit and like, okay, if you spit on somebody else, you know, that's how it is. But I mean, with COVID, we were told that it could travel through the, you know, the spittle or the respiratory droplets floating through the air. And not that it's gain of function aerosolized and they made it so it can actually travel through the air and move around, you know, anywhere from six to 20 feet. I mean, who who knows, but there, there's no f- uh, six foot distance thing here yet that I've read. Uh, but let's keep going. Monkeypox is a viral zoonotic disease that occurs occurs primarily in tropical rainforest areas of the central and African and sorry and West Africa and is occasionally exported to other regions like uh I don't know BSL4 laboratories to be gain of functioned and or at least uh sequenced in order to create the PCR tests continuing on an antiviral agent developed for the treatment of smallpox has also been licensed for the treatment of monkeypox. So there you go. There's an antiviral agent, and they're just using... That's why they have the vaccines all ready to go, right? Because it, the smallpox stuff kind of works for the monkeypox stuff. So we have it all ready to go, right? Not that we've been sequencing this stuff in labs and then making it into a bioweapon and then making the vaccines against that bioweapon. Like we've been, you know, uncovering that this is what goes on in these labs, uh, and we'll have more actual evidence of that coming up here in a minute, uh, or it might even be in a later episode because these there's a lot of grammar to get through here with a limited amount of time on my side. And uh, let me get back to this last point. Monkeypox typically presents clinically with a fever, rash, and swollen lymph nodes that may lead to a range of medical complications. And so again, you know, as part of this, the bio war, you know, something that actually shows on your skin, something that actually you can visibly see, right? Coronavirus might have put some people down. It, some people were, became extremely ill uh, from the coronavirus or the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus that created COVID uh, in people. They may have become extremely ill, but it wasn't like a rash on your skin or on your neck, right? It wasn't like a visible thing. So this this particular virus is useful, you could say, in in uh, shaping public opinion because it's actually a visible thing that you'll be able to see and on yourself, right? I don't know anyone who's contracted this yet. I'm not personally familiar. I've heard stories. I've heard reports. I've heard uh, TikTok videos of people that think they have the monkeypox. Um, something that looks a lot like the smallpox. 
And of course, they're going to go into, you know, that it just comes out of Africa and here's all everything you need to know in that, that who document it goes on for a while. Uh, but I'm going to jump to a document I found on bioweapons in the United States Department of Labor. And I'm going to link that. It's on OSHA.gov slash smallpox slash bioweapon. Again, OSHA.gov slash smallpox slash bioweapon from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration on smallpox as a bioweapon. So let's read what they have to say here on smallpox as a bioweapon. Although naturally occurring smallpox has been eradicated, there is still heightened concern that the variola virus might be used in an agent of bioterrorism as an agent. The concept of using the variola virus in warfare is an old one. British colonial commanders considered distributing blankets from smallpox victims among Native Americans as a biological weapon. If a strain of the variola virus, hopefully I'm saying that right, var- V-A-R-I-O-L-A, variola virus. Sounds like a like a body part, right? Like, oh, on my variola, I got a little rash here on my variola. If a strain of the variola virus could be obtained, it could be manufactured easily. Hold on, I got to check something with the tech. Dang it. Sorry for the interruption, folks. I'll, I'll, I'll finish this sentence here eventually. Uh, If a strain of the variola virus could be obtained, it could be manufactured easily and disseminated widely in an aerosol release. The release of smallpox could escalate to a catastrophic global epidemic unless effective control measures can be implemented quickly. Smallpox has been identified by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, as a, quote, category A, unquote, agent, meaning it has been given a high priority due due to its potential threat to national security. The following references provide information to the use of smallpox as a bioweapon and associate issues to be considered during the smallpox outbreak. Smallpox, Centers for Disease Control, contains extensive smallpox information, including fact sheets, overviews, FAQs, diagnosis and evaluation, infection control, laboratory testing, surveillance and investigation, selected publication, and education and training materials. Henderson, Donald A., and Inglesby, Thomas V., et al., quote, smallpox as a biological weapon, medical and public health management, unquote, Journal of the American Metal Association from June 9th of of 1999, considered the prospect of an aerosol release of a variola virus and provided information on epidemiological infection, signs and symptoms, diagnosis and monitoring, vaccination, medical treatment, infection control, environment, environmental decontamination, and more. And the next point, these are sort of the references that the Department of uh, Labor on OSHA.gov site is giving us for this, uh, you know, fear of or warning of uh, smallpox, like a variola virus being used as an aerosolized biological weapon. So for us to be concerned that that's what this is, I mean, they're they're concerned about it back in 1999, you know, uh, writing research papers on it. Uh, we're going to see here that the Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease, or USAMRIID, has been concerned about it in their chapter 27 on smallpox from the medical aspects of chemical and biological warfare, sort of like handbook 
that we're going to read through next. That provides a review of smallpox, including its history and epidemiological, as well as biological warfare and clinical issues. And the final thing they link to is the Medical Management of Biological Casualties Handbook, 7th edition, U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, USAMRIID, September 2011, contains specific information on a number of potential bioterrorist agents. So, I mean, we've got BSL-4 labs all over the planet. We've got the Wuhan Institute of Virology that uh, apparently uh, there's a lot of evidence linking to the EcoHealth Alliance and Dr. Shi Xing Ling, the bat lady, on developing coronaviruses and gain-of-functioning bat-like bat uh, bat viruses in the lab. And we've also got the Metobiota uh, arm of that in uh, Ukraine, uh, developing uh, biological agents in BSL-4 labs in the Ukraine. And we have uh, ties back to even like people like Hunter Biden overseeing and uh, funding these organizations. And we have evidence here now showing that the you know the united states government was well aware that these things could be used as a biological agent um we even have well let's just continue on to their chapter 27 uh on smallpox from that usamriid medical aspects of chemical and biological warfare document which i'll have leaked leaked uh, leaked i'll have linked in the show notes on from a globalsecurity.org website Uh, but it's from chapter 27 and we'll just read the introduction here the pox virus of the family pox vorate are a are a family of large enveloped doxyribonucleic acid dna viruses the most Notorious pox virus is variola, the causative agent of smallpox. Smallpox was an important cause of morbidity and mortality in the developing world until recent times since the host range of variola viruses is confined to humans. Aggressive case identification and contact vaccinations were ultimately successful in controlling the disease. The last occurrence of the epidemic of, of the endemic smallpox was in Somalia in 1977, and the last human cases were laboratory-acquired infections in 1978. There's a reference for that. By 1980, the World Health Organization General Assembly ratified the Declaration of Success made by the Global Commission for the Central for the Certification of Smallpox Eradication. The concept of using now goes into smallpox as a biological warfare. The concept of using a variola virus in warfare is an old one. British colonial commanders considered distributing blankets from smallpox victims among Native Americans as a biological weapon. During the American Civil War, allegations were made about the use of smallpox as a biological weapon, although there subsequently proved to be no definitive evidence for such. In the years leading up to the and during World War II, The Japanese military explored weaponization of smallpox during the operation of Unit 731 on Mongolia and China, in Mongolia and China. Now, we've learned quite a bit about Unit 731 and, uh, you know, the possible 
integration of those studies and information into our own biological warfare research uh, undergoings here in the United States. And we will have to, you know, we're not going to get down into the unit 731 here, but they did mention it here. Nevertheless, the actual potential of variola viruses as a biological weapon remains controversial. Given the ease of administration and the availability of vaccinia virus as a vaccine against smallpox, some have argued that smallpox would have limited biological warfare potential. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Atlanta, Georgia, presently maintains over 12 million doses of vaccinia vaccine in storage. The WHO has in storage enough vaccine to protect 200 to 300 million people. On the other hand, potential stockpiled vaccines will gradually decline. Okay, so it goes into, you know, some response that they might have planned for this. And uh, let's just go down a little further here in the article. Okay. Uh, Let me get back to the point. Okay, so since 1983, there have existed two WHO-approved and inspected repositories of variola virus, the CDC in the United States, and Vector Laboratories in Russia, who continue to debate whether the H, the, you know, WHO continues to debate whether given the completion of sequencing of several reference strains, all stocks of variola viruses should be destroyed. Proponents of retaining these smallpox Stock argues that military and terrorists use variola viruses as a weapon would readily be countered by a rigorous case contact evaluation and vaccination. Furthermore, they reason that even if the repositories are eliminated, the potential sources of smallpox exist. And then there's three bullet points here. Given the fact that a viable virola or variola virus could be recovered from scabs up to 13 years after collection, and there's a reference for that, it is conceivable that cadavers preserved in permafrost or dry crypts could release the virus. Virus specimens from the smallpox eradication campaign may remain unrecognized and unreported. Using the published sequences of variola and its significant homology with other orthopoxviruses, a malevolent laboratory could theoretically engineer a recombinant virus exhibiting the variola virus virulence by starting with monkeypox virus. So they're sort of going through their fears of what could happen here. It could come out of an ice cap melting and suddenly a dead monkey that was buried in the ice releases this virus or maybe even out of a tomb that they're digging around there in Egypt, and uh, there's a crypt that releases the virus, right? Or using the published sequence of the variola, virola, variola, and its significant homology with other orthopox viruses, a a malevolent laboratory could theoretically engineer a recombinant virus existing, exhibiting variola virus's virulence by starting with monkeypox virus, is what it says here in this uh, document from the Medical Aspects of Chemical and Biological Warfare on the Chapter 27 on Smallpox. Okay. So additionally, in the event that the smallpox should reemerge under one of the above scenarios, destroying the legitimate repositories of variola virus would hinder investigation into both 
the mechanisms of viral pathogenesis so as to affect countermeasures and detailed molecular epidemiologically so as to establish the precise phylogenetic relationships of an isolate to other known strains. So basically, like, we have to keep this stuff around in laboratories and stored away so that we can protect against uh, agents or biological threats or terrorist threats that are out there, right? And of course, they're not just going to leave them sitting there in the labs, right? Uh, they might manipulate them or learn how to gain a function and and weaponize them themselves in order to protect against that, right? That dual-use research and uh, gain-of-function research uh, as a defensive measure against biological terrorist threats, right? So those who advocate Okay, so let's uh, skip down a little bit again here in this long... I mean, this is like a giant book here. We're not going to go reading the whole thing today, but we are trying to get some more grammar on this monkeypox thing. So down on page 542 of this document, uh, we have more information on the monkeypox here. A naturally occurring relative of variola monkeypox virus is found in Africa, and the disease it causes monkeypox is clinically indistinguishable from smallpox, with the exception of notable enlargement of cervical and inguinal lymph nodes. The disease occurs mostly in monkeys from the tropical rainforest of Central Africa, with sporadic transmission to humans. Sporadic transmission to humans, right? It just somehow sporadically gets into humans. Some evidence supports the role of squirrels as the principal animal reservoir of the virus. Over a span of three years, 331 cases of monkeypox disease in a population of 5 million have been reported. Under natural conditions, the virus is transmitted by direct contact with an infected individual, fomites, and occasionally by aerosol. So, just stepping back a little bit, imagine the spread of this thing now. It's going all over the planet. Why all of a sudden is it becoming more virulent? Why is it more able to spread all of a sudden? That's a question we have to ask, right? If it's been around this long and out of, in three years, there were 331 cases of a population of 5 million in these uh, tests in the central rainforests of uh, Africa. Why all of a sudden is this thing becoming more spread around? Why is it suddenly now that this thing is taking off? And the next uh, paragraph here. Concern has been raised whether the monkeypox virus could be weaponized, and if so, whether it would constitute a threat similar to that posed by the variola virus. However, epidemiological evidence indicate that monkeypox virus has limited potential for person-to-person transmission. Accounting for about 30% of of the observed cases, there is one report of its spread through uh, though for human generations, it spread th- though. I don't know if that's supposed to say through the typo there. A stochastic model for interhuman spread of monkeypox indicates that it is very unlikely that the virus could sustain itself indefinitely in the community by interhuman transmission. The finite transmission potential of monkeypox prompted who to maintain active surveillance rather than a vaccination program in the endemic areas successful vaccination uh, vaccinia virus immunization as judged by the presence of pre-existing vaccination scar affords approximately 85% protection against monkeypox 
Nevertheless, a pathogenicity of the monkeypox for humans, the potential morbidity of an aerosolized monkeypox virus attack, and the theoretical potential that genetic recombination could produce a modified animal pox virus with the enhanced virulence for humans have raised the specter that another pox virus besides variola might be constituted either as a serious biowarfare threat or a reemergent public health problem. So the point really being that the, you know, OSHA, the Department, uh, United States Department of Labor, uh, the U.S. AMRIID and uh, many other, you know, the the, uh, in, the Inglesby and Henderson study done in 1999, they are considering the use of these variola viruses or similar like monkeypox virus being used as a biological weapon, and they have concerns over that, right? That's basically what we can summarize here. And then there's, you know, these vaccination programs and how they're going to develop the vaccines. And uh, there's one here. Uh, this is interesting. I just saw the other 37 proteins represent either variola specific sequences or open reading frame DNA sequences that are transcribed into RNA and hence are translated via reading of the genetic code into amino acid sequences, divergences from vaccinia counterparts. These relatively small differences in vaccinia and variola virus proteins suggest that the variola unique proteins act synergistically in bringing about the local and symptomatic manifestations for which smallpox is noted. I just, uh, anyway, I just saw the word RNA in there and I'm like, we, we need to read what that's about. But, oh man, you can get lost in these documents. I, I don't want to go reading the whole thing again, but we're going to leave that there for the references and get into something that Dan Dix was talking about with the uh, NTI, uh, November 2021 roundtable exercise or tabletop exercise roundtable tabletop exercise conducted in partnership with Munich Security Conference. And it says uh, here on their NTI paper, uh, in March 2021, NTI partnered with Munich Security Conference to conduct a tabletop exercise on reducing high consequence biological threats. The exercise examined gaps in national and international biosecurity and pandemic preparedness architectures exploring opportunities to improve prevention and response capabilities for high-consequence biological events. The report summarized the exercise scenario's key findings from the discussion and actionable recommendations for the international community. Now, there's some acknowledgments and a foreword, but in the executive summary, in March 2021, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, NTI, partnered with Munich Security Conference to conduct a tabletop exercise on reducing high-consequence biological threats. Conducted virtually, the exercise examined gaps in the national and international biosecurity and pandemic preparedness architectures and explored opportunities to improve capabilities to prevent and respond to high-consequence biological events. Participants include 19 senior leaders and excerpts from experts from across Africa and the Americas, Asia, and Europe, with decades of combined experience in public health, biotechnology, industries, international security, and philanthropy. 
The exercise scenario portrayed a deadly global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox virus that emerged in the fictional nation of Briania and spread globally over 18 months. Ultimately, the exercise scenario revealed that the initial outbreak was caused by a terrorist attack using a pathogen engineered in a laboratory with inadequate biosafety and biosecurity provisions and weak oversight. By the end of the exercise, the fictional pandemic resulted in more than 3 billion cases and 270 million fatalities worldwide. So, that's very Event 201, Clade X-esque, this... I mean, but they do these tabletop exercises all the time, but it just so happens they were doing this with monkeypox for a, a terrorist a bioengineered virus that was similar to monkeypox that they didn't have the proper response for. And in the, in the projection of that, you know, 270 million people died. Uh, let's just read about the scenario in, in this document developed in consultation with technical and policy experts, the exercise scenario portrayed a deadly global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox virus that first emerged in the fictional country of Briania. I swear they just like copy paste stuff into other areas that what we just read. Later in the exercise, the scenario revealed that the initial outbreak was caused by a terrorist attack. I mean, they basically just copy pasted from what we just read. So that doesn't give us any new information. Um, interesting enough, I went and found that they have like an about section and you can go read about their financials. Uh, they, in their about section, they are the nuclear threat initiative is a nonprofit nonpartisan global security organization focused on reducing nuclear and biological threats, imperiling humanity. So as a nonprofit, I believe they then have to disclose their financial information, right? And in the 2020 annual annual report, which is all they have listed on their website, if you scroll down to the very bottom of that, and then you have to kind of scroll back up and you get into this part that says, thank you, we gradually... We gratefully acknowledge all of the 2022 funders, including the following generous institutions and individuals who gave $500 or more. Your gift to the NTI makes the world safer. And right there on the list is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, They're on the list. There's a lot of other individuals on the list, but, you know, again, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was also sponsoring behind Event 201 and other tabletop exercises like this. And then you have Bill Gates up there. Well, I call this uh, p- pandemic number one, and and in pandemic number two, we're really going to have to learn what the consequences are, right? Like he's talking about pandemic number two as if he's already aware of what pandemic number two is and here he is funding the tabletop exercises uh you know the bill and melinda gates foundation funding uh who are massive eugenicists who are looking to use uh vaccines to reduce the population whose father was a big part of planned parenthood and the eugenic society here in america and on the board of directors uh, one of the founding members and he's just carrying on the lineage of that eugenics philosophy that we've discussed previously in 
the BioSci War. But there's many other uh, funders of this. There's there's quite a few backers. It looks like they had. So it's not just like they're the only ones on there. There's there's a lot of people, and it would be interesting to see any crossover between like Event Two Hundred One and these funders. And so interesting that now we have you know this this new world health organization emergency that's suddenly emerging when kind of the COVID stuff was sort of wearing off and people aren't as, you know, uh, completely glued to the media as they were before. And they're not completely buying it. And this narrative can start to fall apart somewhere. Suddenly we have this new thing that's just rapidly spreading. And even though we see in the documents and the research that monkeypox doesn't rapidly spread and it's not easily transmissible, what changed? You know, what what changed from then to now that suddenly monkeypox is so virulent and transmissible? Um, there's more documents, you know, the medical and management of biological casualties handbook that was linked to in that, that first, um, thing we read from the OSHA site also linked to this other, uh, medical management of biological casualties handbook. And there's quite a few references to monkeypox in that as well. Um, they talk about very similar information in that USMARIID document that we discussed, uh, and they pretty much cover very similar, you know, information regarding that in that document. But now I want to jump to something from trillions.biz, and it's mainly the content of this article, not necessarily the website itself that I don't know a lot about. But here, published in January 15th of 2022, we see we have a leaked document that proved the U.S. military was involved in the COVID creation. And it says, The recent big reveal by Project Veritas uncovered more than most realize, and the implications are terrifying. So, we also have a clip coming up here from the Grand Theft World podcast where Richard and Tony go over that document that is being referenced here the Project Veritas document, as well as some of the source documents from that uh, leaked or uh, put out document. Let's read more here. Let's find out more about what that's about before we go into the clip. It says here on this article called Leaked Documents Prove U.S. Military Involved in COVID Creation. On January 10th, Project Veritas posted a new video entitled Military Documents About Gain-of-Function Contradict Fauci's Testimony Under Oath, along with other documents related to a grant application by EcoHealth Alliance and Defense Advanced Research Project Agency DARPA, and a letter and analysis reported by U.S. Marine Major Joseph P. Murphy, who had been temporarily assigned to DARPA's Biological Technologies Office as a fellow and sat on DARPA's COVID discussions and apparently conducted his own investigation. <clears throat> the grant application and related documents were previously made public, and they show that Fauci knew about the plans of EcoHealth Alliance to do gain-of-function engineering on bat coronaviruses to make them more virulent. But Fauci lying under oath is not really the important takeaway. Fauci has been lying his entire government career, and that is very easy to prove. Making Fauci the focus of the documents may be a deliberate red herring. Uh, now, I'll just jump out of that real quick and say, and is it interesting that Fauci has announced his retirement now? Uh, you know, he's going to go, 
you know, hide away on the beach somewhere, right, and retire uh, just in time to get away from all this shit coming out about him and him being strung up by a tree or at a tree or we could, you know, you, we could bring back the guillotine maybe uh, is what should be happening to these people. You know, there should be so much outrage that we're actually, you know, maybe not burning down the whole place or whatever, but we need to go and hold these people actually accountable for their actions and not just say oh well he's a you know he's a fauci and he's a good guy and he told us that what he knew and he didn't do the game no we need to be looking into these things more carefully and closely and and i don't you anyway i don't want to get into well we should go vote harder and that's how we'll win like that's that's completely ridiculous as well uh but let's continue on with the article the grant application and related documents were previously made public and they show that Fauci knew. Okay, so we already read that. Continuing on. The real story is that Major Murphy, a trusted Marine who had been assigned to work for DARPA as the Marine Program Liaison under the Office of Naval Research, informed the Department of Defense Inspector General DOD IG in a report with the subject SARS-CoV-2 Origins Investigation with the U.S. Government Program Undisclosed Analysis. And the fact that the DOD IG apparently did nothing with the information. The lack of action on part of the DOD may be why Major Murphy decided to leak the documents to Project Veritas, if he did. An analysis of Major Murphy's letter and report reveals some important facts with serious implications, but understanding the implications requires some basic background information and deeper consideration. And the background. A previously reported on September 25th, 2021 by Trillions on January, a previous reported, as previously reported on September 25th, 2021 by Trillions, it's saying like this website, on January 19th, 2018, DARPA's Biological Technologies Office issued a broad agency announcement for preventing emerging pathogenic threats preempt to solicit, quote, innovative proposals to develop novel and scalable approaches to preempt viral spillovers and transmission from animals or vectors into humans, unquote. DARPA's call for the proposal stated, the, quote, the preempt program represents a radical departure from the current practice aiming to target viral bio threats within the animal reservoir where they originate and preempt their entry into human populations before an outbreak occurs, unquote. EcoHealth Alliance submitted a proposal for what they called Project Diffuse to infect Chinese bats with more virulent strains of SARS coronavirus and to expose them to an undefined immune booster vaccine. The work would be carried out in partnership with the military's controlled Wuhan Institute of Virology and China's partner at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the notorious Ralph Barrick. Ralph Barrick was being making coronaviruses has this is like a typo Ralph Barrick has been making coronaviruses more virulent for the past 3 decades i think it should say has been making coronaviruses the project diffuse documents were obtained and analyzed last year by a group called DRASTIC research decentralized radical autonomous search team investigation on covid-19 
Ralph Barrick hosted and trained Chinese scientists with ties to Chinese military in his lab in North Carolina and also made frequent trips to China. He taught the Chinese how to do gain-of-function engineering on the coronaviruses and sent them home with all the knowledge, skills, technology, and viral samples required for them to create SARS, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And he did all that with taxpayer funding through grants by the NIH and the USAID and the military. Project Diffuse basic concept has was to engineer the worst-case coronavirus that could be a threat to humans in partnership with a tied with a lab tied to Chinese military and involved in bioweapons development. Infect bats in caves along with some kind of immune booster or vaccine in the hopes that bats would somehow not spread the virus and would instead develop immunity to to it and be less likely to spread the virus if it developed naturally. While such tampering with nature might appeal to biotechnologies, in reality it was a stupid and dangerous proposal that served no practical purpose. Bats in caves in Yunnan, Ch- China, pose zero threat to American soldiers. That's, you know, the person writing this article, obviously uh, injecting uh, their their take on it at the end there. So there's um, maybe some bias there, you know, that's okay. It was, continuing on, it was not just a U.S. that was aiding and abetting China in its bioweapons programs. Canada also hosted Chinese scientists it knew were tied to Chinese military bioweapons program, trained them and provided them with samples of lethal pathogens to send back to China. When the Royal Canadian Mount Mounted Police, the RCMP, discovered it was going on, informed the government. When nothing was done about the lab to address the risk, the RCMP finally had to physically remove the scientist from the lab, but it was then ordered by higher-ups to allow the scientist to return safely to China, and the whole affair was covered up. France built WIV's BSL-4 lab, required to weaponize pathogens and train Chinese scientists on how to operate the lab. The French government did this against the advice of its own intelligence service, which told the government that the Chinese would use the lab for bioweapons development and not to be able to operate the lab safely and that the pathogens would leak from the lab. The French government argued that the French scientists would be in control of the lab and, of course, once the Chinese scientists were trained, the French were booted out of the lab. DARPA initially rejected the project and proposed due to potential risks but left uh, due to potential risks but left the door open to resubmittal with the re- recommended changes and continued to fund EcoHealth Alliance and other dangerous projects. The idea of weaponizing viruses with China's military and spreading them into the wild through bats apparently did, did didn't raise any red flags with DARPA, the DOD or its various oversight personnel. This demonstrates their insanity, gross stupidity, and high treason and corruption at the highest and deepest levels of the U.S. military. The article then goes on with uh, some more background there, but we're going to jump to what Murphy exposed section. When the great COVID conspiracy started to be questioned, someone in DARPA's hid Someone in DARPA hid the unclassified Project Diffuse documents in a classified folder to keep them hidden. Major Murphy gained access to the classified folder and other information. What Murphy discovered compelled him to write in the leaked report, SARS-CoV-2 is an American-created recombinant bat vaccine, or its 
precursor virus. It was created by an EcoHealth Alliance program at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as suggested by the reporting surrounding the lab leak hypothesis. This, the detail of this program has been concealed since the pandemic began. When synthesized with the EcoHealth Alliance proposal, U.S. collections confirm EcoHealth Alliance was performing the work proposed. The analyst produce their reports in a vacuum, absent the context and proposal the proposal provides. As a fellow at DARPA, I could see both and can do the synthesis. The EcoHealth Alliance responded to the preempt BAA is placed along with other proposal documents in preempt folder in the DARPA's Biological Technologies Office JWICS top secret share drive. The folder was empty for a year, the files completely unmarked with classified classification or distribution data were placed in the folder in July 2021, which conspicuously aligns with media reporting, my probing, and Senator Paul's inquiry into NIH and NIAID's gain-of-function programs, the unmarked nature combined with the timing signals that the documents were being hidden. The proposal notes that Inferion remdesivir, and quaraquinine phosphate inhibit SARS-CoV viral replication. Because of its now-known nature, the SARS-CoV-WIV's SARS-CoV-2 illness is readily resolved with early treatment that inhibits viral replication. Many of the early treatment protocols ignored by authorities work, for instance, ivermectin, works throughout all phases of illness because it both inhibits viral replication and modulates the immune response. Of note, chloroquine phosphate hydroxychloroquine, identified April 2020 as curative, is identified in the proposal as SARS-CoV inhibitor as an interferon, interferon identified May 2020 as curative. So that's like from his uh, leaked document that Project Veritas posted. And, you know, I mean, ivermectin is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines, like top top 20 list or whatever it is of essential medications. They've known it's been effective against uh, viral spread in the body. But of course, it was demonized, you know, in lieu of the vaccines uh, needing to be pushed. They didn't want you to have alternatives out there, essentially. Um, so just continuing on here, the data Murphy's, and now it's outside of the letter, back to the trillions.biz uh, article. The data Murphy's letter has been removed, but in the reference events that occurred in September last year as recent, so it can assume that the letter was written in September or October of last year. This means that the DOD Inspector General knew then or earlier that the Pentagon had likely provided the technology training and funding for the creation of SARS-CoV-2 in partnership with the lab under the control of the Chinese military. So far, the Inspector General has apparently done nothing about it. Efforts by Congress to investigate COVID are being blocked at every level by government. What this, when combined with other data, means is that the conspiracy to engineer SARS-CoV-2 or the SARS-CoV-WIV virus heavily involved U.S. government. Evidence indicates that the conspiracy was many years in the making and likely goes back to the Obama regime, which made regulatory changes to enable the extreme COVID response and developed the, quote, playbook of early response to high-consequence emerging infectious disease threat and biological incidents, unquote. 
the National Security Council in 2016, which Trump inherited. Then the CDC changed its definition of vaccine in 2018 to include mRNA gene therapy treatments, which are not really vaccines by conventional definition, ahead of the first cases of COVID in 2019. Factor in the 20, the October 18th, 2019 event 201, and it's obvious that the release of the SARS-CoV-2 was planned and the date of its release scheduled. Factor in the fact that so-called vaccines are somehow developed within months when it would have actually taken many years. It is obvious that, obviously that the conspiracy also involves Big Pharma. The sponsors of event 201 were mostly Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum. The event participants included high-level CIA employees. Also substantially involved in the conspiracy are academia and mainstream media, all of which are substantially influenced by the same forces. The two investigations of the origins of the virus by the U.S. government were not investigations but cover-ups, as were the investigations by the World Health Organization. There were ample information readily available to trace the origins of the virus. So that's why they did the leak, right? I'm jumping out of that. He made some leaps there. The author of this article made leaps that said, well, then it's obvious that it was intentionally released. That's not proven. There's That's very hard to go and prove. But we can start to connect some dots and we can say, well, who created this? And it's, it's again, it's the, it's the uh, NIH, the NIAID, and their funding of uh, the EcoHealth Alliance to uh, create these recombinant bat viruses, and uh, SARS-CoV-2 was created in that way. And then they tried to say, oh, well, yeah, it leaked. That's why there's the leak thing. At first, it jumped out of nature, which was total bullshit, in that road for a while. And then it was, oh, well, no, it was leaked. It leaked. It, someone, it came out on someone's shoe, you know. And again, I don't have the smoking gun evidence in front of me that's like, here's where, you know, the DOD started to release this stuff out there or like the CIA, you know, put these things in in the train tunnels, you know, like they've done tests on before or they sprayed it, they're spraying it on us. Like we don't have that. It just, it's it's very, it's a coincidence, right? Um, the The opposite of conspiracy theory is coincidence theory. So if you think that, uh, it's all just a big coincidence, and uh, there's nothing going on. Then you know, then you're a, a coincidence theorist. You think that everything that happens is just coincidence, and there's no, there's no tracing back or talking about the uh, project for a new American Centuries document that said biological uh, weapons could be used as useful political tools back in like 2002. There, there's nothing like that back there to point back to, right? That we can look at and see. Would our government really be involved in wanting to do this? Or, uh, you know, that they would do it. People are, that they wouldn't do that. Yeah, go back to Operation Sea Spray. Go back to Agent Orange. Go back to the spraying Agent Orange on Vietnamese people or here in Arizona. Uh, or, um, you know, putting bacteria in subway train cars to see what they would do in the subway system and not letting people know that they were being part of these tests, right? Now, that article is going to go on, but what I need to jump into now in the essence of time is, man, there's so much to cover, Uh, but I think I'm going to let Rich cover from the Grand Theft World podcast. He and Tony actually went over that Project Veritas document, and I'd like to play that into the record here. I'm going to actually have to play it. I didn't clip it out in time. 
And I was thinking I would, you know, dig into that a little bit, but let's, let's let them do that. And then I'll come back and we will continue on. Um, we're going to change topics at the end of the BioSci where we're going to go into the FOIA, Freedom of Information Act documents from uh, a presentation that Sonia Aliha, Aliha did for the Coronavirus Investigation Committee out of Germany there, those folks who've been doing like a weekly uh, session with many people coming in and presenting the information to them on, you know, uncovering all this coronavirus stuff. And so it changes topics because we're going to get into the uh, leaked Pfizer documents and her presentation of that. But I'll come back for a little bit after I play this clip into the record here that I'm about to play. And then um, we'll wrap up the episode with uh, Sonia after that. But let me find... Now I've lost my tab. Okay. Here is the tab. And let's make sure the audio is routed right. And we'll play this. Hawks be upon them. All right. So... Why do we play that clip? Do we play that clip to try to scare you? Absolutely not. It seemed like the primary care physicians, the CDC, the WHO are scaring people about He's that. He's talking thing. about a clip from Jimmy Dore. not even telling you what the symptoms are or what to watch out for. So we'll let this I continue. I also have some information that said uh, in an earlier report today that the presentation of the, the what they're calling monkeypox has a different presentation of symptoms than what's in the texts and what doctors are looking for as far as so uh we can oh, get to that clip. okay i didn't know that. Yeah. but my my point is this the world health organization tedros has declared a global health emergency over the monkeypox they're going to try to make it a thing so the more we can learn about they them those that are trying to do these things the better we can protect ourselves and our families right um it doesn't look like uh, a lethal you know, like Ebola type thing. It looks something uh, that's treatable and um, is inoculated by a smallpox vaccine. That's how they would fix it. So they're not going to come out with a monkeypox vaccine, though I wouldn't put it past them because uh, I've researched this for the past couple of weeks since we did the episode a couple months ago, monkeypox madness, when they started flipping this out on the screen, right? So you can go back to our May episode. Let's not forget about vaccine modernization. So like, sure. why not yeah. pump out a new MRA? Barda, Rick from Barda, our, our friend Rick from DARPA's <laughs> Barda. Um, so the who's declaring this a, a medical emergency. Tedros came out, made that statement. We can play a clip on that later mm-hmm. tonight. But also, um, I did find a couple references, and it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a tiny bit disturbing, but these are, this is the facts of the matter. So let's go to this first document. It's all about evidence and primary sources, right, kids? This is an unclassified document. It's brought to us by the folks at uh, Project Veritas. Uh, no, I'm going to have to restart that camera. Hold on. Hold on. Hold it. Hold it. There we go. All right. Unclassified. This is the title of the document. Is, uh, it's from Murphy Joseph P. Major, U.S. Marine Corps DARPA. And he had written this document that Project Veritas then released. And in uh, page, there's no page numbers on the document, but several pages in here. This is talking about EcoHealth and Project Preempt, which is the EcoHealth Alliance project uh, diffuse that they were submitting. And this is the DARPA whistleblower in his summary letter. And then I will take you to the source document for this claim because I didn't believe it. So I had to go read a 75-page document once upon a time. And anyway, 
Preempt, Volume 1. Uh, there's the ESS number, EcoHealth Alliance, Project Diffuse. Let me see if it's on screen. Another there description used. Quote, this is EcoHealth talking. We will develop recombinant chimera spike proteins from known SARS coves and those characterized by diffuse, that's a DARPA project, using details of SARS S protein structure and host cell binding. We will sequence, reconstruct, and characterize spike trimmers and RBDs of SARS coves, incorporate them into nanoparticles or raccoon pox virus vectors for delivery to bats. And as I argue in these documents, replace bats with people and you have what the pandemic was because they were trying to give an aerosolized vaccine to bats. That's what their document wants to do. <laughs> Using chimeric recombinant processes with, okay, so with uh, uh, ra- raccoon pox or whatever. Right. So that's, that's this it's absurd. I mean, yeah. It's, it's this big. It's an interesting document. It's, a pro- it's available at Project Veritas. Now, this is the proposal. This is volume one. Here's the DARPA preempt. Here's the lead organization, EcoHealth Alliance. And when you get in here, here's Peter Daszak. Here's EcoHealth. Here's Wuhan on the cover page. Wuhan, China. Chapel Hill, North Carolina. New York, New York. Right? Uh, this is pre-pandemic. This is 2018. This is the proposal for what they were trying to do at the Wuhan lab that everyone has questions about. I'm just going to take you to the hot spots that involve the pox. Let's see. Not that page. That's just a smoking gun of the matter. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Page 28, I'm reading from page 28. This is Project Diffuse. This is the EcoHealth uh, submission. And it talks about uh, deliverables of task eight. Okay, deliverables of task eight. Chimeric SARS-CoV immunogens and pox virus vectored immune boosting molecules available for use. I bet those molecules are nanoparticles. Yep. You know? Because that's what they said in the other document. Yeah, vector uh, immune, immune boosting. So In this task eight, they're also going to do a proof of concept for targeted immune boosting approach in humanized mice and captive bats. So well, which I happened to be this. what was housed at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Sorry. It's all coincidence, Tony. But, and notice they said pox generally, too. They're not specifying a specific. So it seems like they have many different types of Damn. pox they can work with. Here we are. Let me zoom back out. Mm-hmm. Project Diffuse. I'm trying to bring page up the 30, PDF. It's page 36. Forever. If you're going through my notes, you see pox, pox. So we better zoom in there, right, Tony? Now, <laughs> what is this? Zoom. This is a list of this is a list of reference papers that you're they're using to bring forth their proposal to be like, hey, what we want to do is possible because of all these. So let's go into the nerdiness of it. Oh my goodness, what is a spike protein nanoparticles? Nanoparticles protect mice from MERS. Okay, nanoparticles, raccoon pox virus. Those nanoparticles be the lipid nanodelivered rabies vaccine. Oh, raccoon pox. Sorry, raccoon pox vectored rabies Mm -hmm. vaccine. Uh, And there's a couple more in here too. So let's not just stop at the pox right there. In fact, they're using raccoon pox vectored. Rabies. So they're raccoons, using raccoon. Monkeys, they're using the like a, they're using yeah. raccoon pox, which I guess isn't virulent supposedly. Here's number as, forty. As page, a, sorry, good. Page forty-two. We got some more pox. Uh, apparent field safety of a raccoon pox vectored plague vaccine in free-ranging prairie dogs. 
Oh, they're doing that on prairie dogs, are they? They got the raccoon pox vaccine out oh, there excellent. going on. And then uh, this is a, an oldie but goodie. This is from 2016. This is the end of that document, by the way. Their submission included articles they wrote. So I read one of these articles at the end. This is like, you know, in the 75-page document. This is the end of the document. This guy, Ralph Barrick, who created the no technique at University of North Carolina, is being used as an example of how they can splice these things to do. Um, Wuhan Institute of Virology is referenced. SARS vaccine didn't work. They're ACE talking two, about that. ACE2, yeah, SARS-CoV, oh, yeah. Wuhan Institute. Let's see. Chimeric viruses, vaccines don't work. ACE2, humanizing mice, monoclonal antibodies, ACE2. Oh, they can infect humans if they, if they humanize the mice is what they found out right here. This is, uh, this is interesting, right? Because it's the WIV1. That's a Wuhan Institute of Virology. One virus has had significant attenuation, even with the presence of human ACE2 in the mouse model. Together, the data suggests that despite using ACE2 and robust replication in primary human airway epithelial cultures, Wuhan Institute of Virus 1 Cove likely maintains deficits that impact pathogenesis in mice. Therefore, Wuhan Institute of Vi- Virology 1 Medicated infection may have diminished epidemic potential in humans relative to SARS-CoV-2. You know what that meant, Tony? They had to go to Wuhan Institute of Virology 2 because this didn't do the thing they wanted to do, right? It didn't. It diminished epidemic potential. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking to create epidemic potential mm-hmm. in these documents. So it's, a, it's an interesting you know, trail that when you go to try to find, are they talking about pox? Yep, they're talking about pox. Are they talking about monkey pox? I haven't seen the paperwork yet that yeah. Wuhan Institute of Virology was working on the monkeypox, but there's lots either. of claims out there. I'm just saying they're working on raccoon pox all over the only, The only thing you can attribute to the Wuhan Institute of Virology right now with monkeypox is just coming up with like part of the genetic sequence for production for the PCR, for the testing for monkeypox. That's it that I'm aware of. But not like not researching monkeypox itself. Sorry, I didn't turn my camera on, but yeah. Anyway, I'm sure it's all just coincidences. Let's see. There's any pox over here? Just real quick. Pox, pox. <laughs> now, this is all how they did the other thing. Right? But, yeah. Documents are interesting when you read them like this. But on with this show. On with the show. We can't look at, you know, DARPA documents. Can't look at, you can't night. know about reality, Rich? Can't look at. Know about the types of proposals yeah. that are out there? Don't look at DARPA whistleblowers from the U.S. Marine Corps. Definitely don't read those things. You know, these are proposed to DARPA. They I'm sure wanna... it's not newsworthy. It's, it's the save bats. Bat aerosolized vaccine. Chimeric processes. Not, it's, it wasn't an advertisement for William Dalrymple's <laughs> The Company Quartet set of books. I just had this over here holding up the stack of documents that goes on top of this. That's how it looks like that. All right. So mm-hmm. I would like to go to... Uh, Matt Walsh did a show a couple days okay, ago. Okay, so they finish out the clip there, and they go into some other clips, and there's some other interesting information that they cover in that episode 90 of the Grand Theft World podcast, and uh, that just came out on Sunday, January, or sorry, July 24th, and at hour number four, let's see, I had this somewhere. At like hour number four and a half, somewhere around there. Uh, let's see. See, I, did, I wasn't prepared with the clip, 
but the document that Tony was just talking about with the the only evidence is that they were making PCR tests that actually shows that they were using uh, genetically sequenced uh, monkeypox viruses uh, to target with PCR test. And that article will cover perhaps more in the next episode, but it's called the efficient assembly of large fragment of monkeypox virus genome as qPCR template using dual selection based transformation associated recombination from pubmed.ncbi.nlm.nih.gov. This is the uh, article that was published there on the pubmed.gov. And the abstract says, uh, basically shows how they were using genetically frag- genetic genomic fragments of monkeypox virus uh, for PCR testing. And I'll re- read the abstract here. Trans- and there's going to be a lot of words that I screw up or skip over because I don't know how to say it. Transformational association recombination, TAR, has been widely used to assemble large DNA constructs. One of the significant obstacles hindering assembly efficiency is the presence of error-prone DNA repair pathways in yeast, which result in vector backbone recirculization or illegitimate recombination products. To increase TAR assembly efficiency, we prepare a dual-selective TAR vector, PGFCS, by adding a PAD. H1-URA3 cassette to a previously described yeast bacteria shuttle vector, a PGF harboring a PHIS3-HIS3 cassette, as a positive selection marker. This new cassette works as a negative selection marker to ensure that yeast harboring recircularized vectors cannot propagate in the presence of 5-fluoratic acid. To prevent PGFCS bearing URA3 from recombining with endogenous URA352 in the yeast gen- genome, a highly transformable Saccharomyces cevesia strain, VL648B, was prepared by a chromosomal substitution of UR- URA352 with a transgene conferring resistance to blacidin. A 55kb genomic fragmented fragment of monkeypox virus encompassing primary detection targets for quantitative PCR was assembled by TAR using PGFCS in VL648b. The PGFCS me- mediated TAR assembly showed a zero rate of vector recirculation and an average correct assembly yield of 79%, indicating that the dual selection strategy provides an efficient approach to optimizing TAR assembly. And the key words are monkeypox, virus, TAR assembly. And so that would show that they were working with monkeypox virus in the lab uh, to use genomic fragments um, to selectively, quantitatively target with PCR, right? And so there, that's just the abstract of the article. Uh, you can link the the hyperlinks to the whole article or at the top of it. And then, you know, there's the introduction that talks about more of that uh, problem and uh, how they were isolating it uh, fragment with fragments of the monkeypox virus. It says monkeypox in that in that article, monkeypox virus. MPXV are large DNA viruses with reported genomic sizes ranging from 190,083 to 206,000 
206,372 BP in length. As a member of the Orthopox virus genus, the family Paroxovidia MPXV is subdivided into West African and Congo Basin clades. So, an article showing that they were indeed uh, manipulating and messing with the monkeypox virus from uh, February of 2022, uh, published in the Viral Sin. And I'm just trying to find out a little bit more about that. Um, so yeah, so there's more evidence to be had, uh, that ends the section on the grammar that I want to go into on monkeypox for now, and we'll get into more of that and other bio-sci-war barrage aspects later on this week. Uh, I know this episode was full of long words and it wasn't intended to confuse you or it's not intended to muddy the water. The intention was to get some more grammar down on, you know, the threat of monkeypox, how the, the government has been worried about that being used as a biological agent, that they have been doing tests against it to identify it with PCR in the lab. And we need to do more research and more uncovering on that as more evidence comes out. We'll cover it in the bio war. But now, like I said, we're going to shift gears. We're going to move into a different topic in the bio war barrage. And we're going to jump into that uh, FAOI presentation, the Freedom of Information Act release um, from the Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency that uh, the Sonia Alahi is going to cover here in the clip. And we're going to let her do her presentation on that she did on the episode session 114 called the inverse principle from the coronavirus investigation committee and hear more about the studies and the papers and the research documents that the FDA used to approve the emergency medical use authorization for the Pfizer vaccinations. And if there were anything in there that was concerning or anything that we needed to be aware of beforehand, that now that everybody's jabbed with these things and, and not going to go back and look at the information. Most people are in cognitive dissonance. They're not going to go do any research on something they've already decided to commit to. Um, that most of them probably don't even know that it's mRNA vaccine gene therapy that they redefined. Uh, like you, like I said there earlier in like 2018, redefining the the meaning of vaccine to meet to include mRNA technologies, which is a gene therapy. Uh, which goes in and creates the spike protein in your body, and it spreads all around. Um, we heard previously uh, from the uh, Pfizer whistleblower guy. I forget his name. It's it's. Uh, let's see. I had it in the show notes here. Where we covered that the spike protein was a very dangerous bit to be using. And I was just trying to locate where I had put that in the bio war barrage. That was, I believe, part two. Uh, 
and it was um let me try to find the name here uh mike eden was the name of that pfizer whistleblower who was explaining in episode one part one of the biosci war barrage in episode 27 of freedoms rising we covered that so anyway we're going to get into these pfizer documents that's going to close us out today on the episode and we'll be back with more biosci war barrage soon i do have an upcoming uh, camping trip planned with the family where we're going to go to jackalope freedom festival here in the first two weeks of august we're going to be there from the fourth uh, sorry from the first through the seventh about so that's when we'll be up there but it goes on for the first two weeks of august and we'll be up there representing freedoms rising if you are there and you come by you can look for the freedoms rising banner i had one made i just got it yesterday actually and we'll hang that up so you can if you recognize the freedoms rising thing come say hi come uh, let me know that you're a listener and it's always uh, good to talk to people out in the field that have got good they have good feedback or even just want to you know chat and say hi and uh We'll be out there at Jackalope Freedom Festival. Again, you can find more information about that in the show notes as well, about the Freedom Festival that's going on. And uh, if you're able to come, it's in uh, near Heber, Arizona, again, from August 4th through 14th, if you're interested in going. I know it's kind of last minute, but some people have the ability to go and do things like that last minute. There's two full weeks where you can come by on a weekend and just hang out. And again, we'll be up there. Look for our R Matey's uh, Not a Bar uh, vending area where we have lots of good uh, drinks, treats, and snacks, and other things that you can, and merchandise from Freedoms Rising and TylerBloyer.com and Alt Eats, uh, where we'll be up there vending those things and uh, participating in, in the experiment of the decentralized organization, autonomous organization of what is the Jackalope Freedom Festival. So I'm going to get into this clip here. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. It's about 35 minutes and then the episode will close out. So I appreciate you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Um, Sonia, Elijah, she was with us in the last session. Yeah, was it the last or the one before that? Hi, Sonia. How are you doing? Hi, Rainer. Hi, Vivian. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, even the weather is good. <laughs> yeah, well, it's cooled down in the UK a bit, so... Yeah, it's cooled down a little here. I think it even started to rain this morning, but uh, and there's going to be more rain uh, predicted for tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, I believe. But it's still pretty hot. This is summer, you know? Everybody exactly. keeps saying, oh, my God, it's global warming. Not really. It's summer. <laughs> exactly. Um I, I had prepared for you and, and your viewers um, a some slides uh, to, to what I'm going to be discussing uh, my investigative yes. report on the Pfizer documents. Is it okay that I go ahead and, yeah, and share, share the screen? Um, so I'm just going to do that. Let me briefly, yeah. uh, briefly, just to remind our viewers uh, who you are, give them a little bit of background. You have a background in economics. You're a former BBC researcher. Uh, your analysis of the Pfizer COVID vaccine safety report received worldwide attention. And that's because since uh, December, 
of 2021, I believe, you have investigated and analyzed the Pfizer trial documents that were released by court order. And you have single-handedly, it's not just 10 or 20 or 100 pages, you've single-handedly gone through thousands of pages of documents and discovered many anomalies that speak to fraud. You have written four in-depth investigative reports for trial site news um, and an interview um, of you by an Australian media company regarding your first report went viral on YouTube, over 1.4 million views in three days just before YouTube banned you. This is what they always do. This is their knee-jerk reaction. But of course, it can't keep us from speaking the truth. Yeah, go ahead. It's, uh, uh, this is about the Pfizer documents. This is what we've been waiting for. Great. Exactly, and um, and just to before I begin, we you know we need to thank the um, the plaintiff group, public health and medical professionals for transparency, mm-hmm. because if it wasn't for that group, we wouldn't have access to all these documents. So, uh, um, so back in August twenty twenty one, this. Group of about 30 medical professionals led by Dr. Peter McCullough uh, uh, sent a FOIA request to the FDA to ask for all the documents that the FDA relied on to authorize the Pfizer BioNTech COVID 19 vaccine. Um, three months later, in November, what the FDA did, they just released only 90 pages, which is like a fraction, like less than 1% of all the documents. And they released that November 2021. So, um, and They then had to take them to court. This is the plaintiff group to get the FDA. And it was actually through a court ordered, uh, it was court ordered by Justice Pittman that they actually had to disclose all the documents. And they did like over a a, a schedule, a time schedule. Um, So every month now we're getting thousands of pages released. Um, So the first report focused on the, um, it was the cumulative. Uh, analysis of post-authorization adverse event reports. And uh, this report focused on, it was a three-month period from December 1st, uh, 2020 to 28th of February, 2021. And um, it's just, it's very alarming because what you're seeing, oh, hang on, let me see. Right. Okay. So first of all, over 42,000 cases were recording were recorded. Um, so these are individuals who uh, who had adverse events, and the I mean the amount of adverse events is staggering. You've got over a hundred over 158,000 events. These are symptoms um, that were reported spontaneously to Pfizer, and that's literally an average of a single person having at least three symptoms. Now, there were many unknowns in this in this 38-page document. Um, we have uh, at least over 2,900 cases where the gender is unknown. Uh, we have 6,876 cases where age is unknown. And over 9,000 cases where the outcomes are unknown. Wow. And that, that's very, very alarming. Um, so what actually stood out when I first read the report, and this is in the beginning of the report, it actually, they, Pfizer had to hire extra staff to process 
the large volume of spontaneous adverse events. They had to hire an additional 600 full-time employees to process all of these adverse event reports. So that is just so shocking um, because they didn't expect I guess they didn't expect it. I've no idea, but they had to. The fact that they had to take on this extra, the extra stuff, really speaks volumes here. Um, so that that's quite significant. Um, now, off the bat, we know one thousand two hundred twenty-eight people were recorded to have died within three months after taking the vaccine, and this was known to Pfizer by the end of February twenty twenty-one. Now, what's really remarkable. Um, I found a quote from, uh, this is back in April 2021, we have Dr. Mace Rothenberg, the former Pfizer chief medical officer, and when he was talking to the Washington uh, Journal about the development of the vaccine, he said, I can tell you that no corners were cut and there have been no deaths that have occurred directly as a result of the vaccine alone. So that's yeah, very yeah, shocking. But you can, but you can see in, in the way that he tried to phrase his, uh, in, in, in the way that he tried to, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, manipulate his own words, you can see that there's something not quite right. He knows exactly. it, but he's trying yes. to get around it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I pinpointed some of these major sort of adverse events. So these are the ad- a- a- AESI is an adverse event of special interest. And we have uh, a category of uh, cardiovascular events. And under that category, you know, we, I've just listed some cardiac failure, arrhythmia, tachycardia, um, uh, myocardial infarction. So now we have uh, over 1400 cases of the is cardiovascular AESIs. Now, uh, we know that 136 of those, the outcome was fatal. And then this is what's really important. The median relevant event onset latency was less than 24 hours. And I'll just explain that. So that means basically that 50% of those relevant relevant and outcomes, including deaths, occurred less than 24 hours after receiving the vaccine. And this points to vaccine death causality, because it just it happened so, you know, so soon after the vaccine was administered. Um, so this, this is important. Um, now, what is very shocking, going through this document, women with over like three times more affected by these adverse events. Um, Now, I I particularly uh, uh, have highlighted anaphylaxis here, which is a potentially life-threatening allergic reaction. Women were over eight times more affected when it came to anaphylaxis. So this is really important. This is a statistically statistically significant data, and and it reveals you know, the possibility of gender-specific vaccine safety risks. Mm. The fact that women were more affected by the vaccine. Um, Then we've got uh, anaphylaxis, which I... I Sorry? I I was just wondering um, if if there could be any explanation. Do do you know why why something like this can happen, that it's so much more... Uh, damaging to women than to men or like yes no that's a really good question Vivian I I don't know that I'm not a scientist I don't know it's just it is it's definitely statistically significant and I I, I why or why exactly 
exactly why are women more affected? Mm-hmm. And it's not just nominally, it's like three times more. And, you know, it's some to do, you know, with anaphylaxis over eight times more. So there is something going on here and um, why why women are more affected. But I can't I can't give you an answer to that. Um, so and then we have um, four out of the nine deaths. This is this is to do with anaphylaxis. Four out of the nine deaths occurred on the exact same day the, the individuals were vaccinated. Again, this strongly suggests vaccinal death causality. Um, another thing that was very alarming was the pregnancy outcomes. Now, we know that pregnant women were never officially part of the Pfizer's pivotal clinical trials, um, but this is the report that I am I'm, I'm sort of analyzing is the post authorization adverse event. So this is after this is after the um, the EUA was given, and uh, so we know that there were. This is very alarming. Uh, Two hundred and seventy pregnancies. Out of those pregnancies, twenty three were spontaneous abortion. That means miscarriage. Um, uh, we have uh, premature birth with neonatal death, spontaneous abortion with uh, in, in intrauterine death, two each, spontaneous abortion with neonatal death, a normal outcome, one each. But what is very shocking, so this is out of the 270, no outcome was provided for 238 of those pregnancies. So, you know, they were simply not followed up which is just so shocking given that, you know, uh, we have the CDC and many health agencies around the world saying, oh, it's perfectly safe for pregnant women to have the vaccine. Right. Um, now, at the end of this report, it's very interesting, there was an appendix and eight pages uh, in this appendix, and it was just listing all of the AESIs. And, and that's just very, very shocking. Eight pages of it and spotted like uh, sprinkled everywhere within this report. You have Pfizer's conclusion. This cumulative case review does not raise any new safety issues. Surveillance will continue. And that that's sort of uh, sprinkled throughout this report. Um, so that was my first report that I wrote. I'm going swiftly on to um, uh, I looked at now the case report forms um, and um, these are uh, the I think these are, these are the data that um, Naomi Wolf referred to when she said, I'm I'm sorry, but I have to inform you that we're witnessing a genocide. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I mean, Naomi Wolf, yes, she's she's got into with her team. Um, mm-hmm. I think she's has she has many, many people, dozens of people who help her mm. go through this. I've single-handedly done this yeah. starting from last December. Um, but these case report forms are so important when it comes to clinical trial research. Mm. They capture standardized clinical data from each patient, which includes the ad- these adverse events, and they play a very important role in pharmacovigilance. So these sort of thousands of pages of case report forms were dumped around March 1st, um, and I just have prepared them some slides for you, and I've just sort of done some snapshots just because it's easier for people to see it this way. So what I kept, what I found was there was many, many case report forms where you have missing SAE numbers. SAE means serious adverse event. 
So these SAE numbers were missing, and I've just sort of highlighted a few. I also would like to point out that if you see at the top right, can you see site name? And it has in brackets 1128, and it says Ventavia Research Group. Now, if you know, Ventavia was, you know, uh, it, uh, there was a lot of scandal attached to, to Ventavia. Yeah. I've personally interviewed Brooke Jackson, mm-hmm. who is the former regional director uh, of, of um, she managed some of the Ventavia trial sites, and she was, and she's obviously, you know, she's as her as as a whistleblower. Ventavia was the subcontractor used by Pfizer to run their clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, uh, and she obviously she she spoke about, uh, you know, their gross incompetence, poor laboratory management. Um, they put patient safety at risk. They, uh, she pointed to fraud. So you have, um, so it's very interesting that what I found obviously backs up what Miss um, Jackson uh, ha- has claimed. Um, so missing SAE numbers, we have missing barcodes on all the lab samples, which is again very alarming. And then you have a lot of inaccurate data entry. And all this really strongly speaks to, you know, gross incompetence at a minimum. Huh. Um, now, what is interesting now, you have certain cases where uh, the adverse event was actually COVID-19 uh, related pneumonia. And what is interesting, it says here, potential COVID-19 related pneumonia should have triggered a COVID illness visit. So you have a trial investigator sort of inputting this data uh, and sort of querying it. So it shows that the protocol was not being followed. Um, it because obviously the COVID illness visit was was not triggered. It it, it didn't it didn't happen, um, and and that's very alarming. So people who had these sort of COVID nineteen related symptoms should have had a proper official COVID illness visit, and it should have been recorded. And there were special forms that needed to be filled in, and that didn't happen here. Um, you have um, I've put sort of MC meaning Mary Campbell. She's one of the investigators. So she opens a query saying, please update AE term, AE meaning adverse event term to COVID pneumonia. So she's wanting it to be corrected. Right. And then you have uh, Jen Vasilio, JC, answering site has not been made aware this event was COVID pneumonia has and has no records that state COVID. Therefore, the term cannot be updated to such. So this is just shocking. They're just saying, no, it can't be because we have no record of it. But they haven't even followed their own protocol. And you have then the response, uh, the queries then closed very swiftly, uh, because obviously, you know, that that uh, that that response is has, you know, they found it satisfactory. Uh, Again, very shocking. Um, here, which is just very alarming, you actually have a participant's death recorded before a COVID ill visit. I mean, that is just so shocking. Um, so you have a lot of this going on uh, with these case report forms, and it, it's just highly, highly alarming. Now, I was going through um Again, these are thousands and thousands of pages. So, for example, I found one subject. Again, this is with Vantavia, and you have them having at least three adverse events, and it was all all sort of connected with the kidney impaired kidney function. Now, this subject had um, no prior history because you have medical their medical history 
history as well, it, uh, logged in as well. So no, no prior medical history of any sort of impaired renal function. Um, but all of a sudden, after two doses of the treatment, um, they suddenly develop kidney stones, severe hypokalemia, and then you have uh, UTI. And uh, I, all of these events are not related to the study treatment. I mean, again, with a lot of these adverse events, that is the conclusion that these investigators write, that they, they sort of say this has got nothing to do. Um, right. So now this document I just did actually very recently. So this was released July 1st. And this, I think, is a very damning document. Um, it was over 3,600 pages. I went through nearly all of them. And um, it provides narrative comments on hundreds of trial subjects who, due to adverse events, which include death, pregnancy, COVID-19, or just no longer meeting the eligible criteria, were withdrawn from the trial. And so I focused on the trial subjects who were given the vaccine, not the placebo. And um, what is just so alarming, Reiner, is that for every adverse event, which includes death, Pfizer's stated opinion is always there was no reasonable possibility that it that, that it was related to the study invention intervention. Um, so that's their sort of conclusion throughout. Now, I just pinpointed some of them. So we have, for example, this subject um, 1007-1101. So this person suffers from, a, uh, has a cardiac arrest that proves to be fatal. Um, they have had uh, two, do two doses of the vaccine. Uh, you can see 30th of July and then on the 20th of August. Now, they, they suffer from a, a, a cardiac arrest. And uh, again, you have the you have the writing. It's just not related to the vaccine because it occurred two months after the last receipt of the study agent. So you have them writing that. You also, which is very alarming, you have it was unknown. This is this is in the narrative comments, but I, I've just sort of paraphrased. It was unknown if an autopsy was performed. So my question is, why why was there no official follow up, no inquiry into into getting an autopsy performed? Uh, as we know, cardiac arrest is listed as an uh, adverse event of special interest in Pfizer's own post post authorization report on these adverse events. But, you know, according to, to Pfizer and the, and the investigator, it's got nothing to do with the vaccine because it happened two months later. So um, now we have a, a person who, who again, is it, it's a death. So we know this outcome is death. Um, and they suffered from arteriosclerosis. Now, they were given the vaccine on the 10th of September. And um, again, we have uh, the comment down below. Uh, that this is to do with the investigators. In the, in, in the opinion of the investigator, there was no reasonable possibility that arteriosclerosis was related to study intervention, but rather it was related to the suspected underlying disease. And you have, of course, Pfizer concurred with the investigator's causality assessment. But when I looked into that subject's medical history, there was no mention of this disease. So, but according to Pfizer, as an investigator, it you know this this disease it was it's an underlying disease that this patient had and and that's why they died. It's got nothing to do with the vaccine. Um, 
Now, this is actually really critical, this, this next slide. Now, if you remember, back in December 10th, uh, 2020, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was the Pfizer-funded report entitled Safety and Efficacy of the BNT162B2 mRNA COVID-19 Vaccine. Now, in that report, it mentions only two, um, a study mentions only two vaccine recipients who died. But I found a third death. I mean, this is really shocking. So this third death was never included in the official report that was published in the NEJM on the 10th of December. And so you have this individual who suffered from, so they were vaccinated on the 7th of October, 2020, and they suffered from a syncope. Uh, and it was reported on the 26th of October that they were admitted to hospital because they fainted in the middle of the night. Uh, the subject was transferred to the ICU and the subject died on the 11th of November. The cause of death reported as unknown. It was not reported if an autopsy was performed. And again, this is just so shocking. Per Pfizer, syncope, most likely coincidental. So this is a third death officially. It was never included in their report. Um, it's just com been completely left out. Um, I, I was just very shocked to discover this. Um, now we also go to, uh, I came across subject 11781107, a 48-year-old female who developed uh, lymphodenapathy uh, and had at least four enlarged lymph nodes after receiving her first dose of the vaccine. Um, now, again, in this, uh, we have a, a section of four narrative comments. Uh, it reveals that even after the hospital, this is really shocking, the hospital oncologist believed that the vaccine to be the most likely cause for, for her condition, for her lymphodenopathy. And even the trial investigator, this is Pfizer's trial investigator, gave the opinion that there was a reasonable possibility that this condition was related to the study intervention. But what is just shocking is Pfizer did not concur. So even after the oncologist and the trial investigator was saying, well, there is a connection here, Pfizer did not agree. Um, and that's the end. That's the end of the slides I prepared. Um, so I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Well, it seems to me that despite the fact that some people who have looked into this and um, have commented on uh, what was released by court order, um, some of them may be some some people claim that many of them are or some of them are alarmists but if i look at the data you just showed us there's nothing alarmist about it we should be even more alarmed than these people are one of the persons one of the people who we spoke with is karen kingston um and she told us and i explicitly asked her about i think this was a trial involving children toddlers uh between 6 months and 4 years old and for some reason just like the story you told us about how people seem to have been withdrawn from the study, I asked her about whether or not there is a possibility that some 2,000-something children who seem to have been withdrawn from the study died. And she said there is a possibility. Now, that's, that may sound alarmist. 
But after hearing what you have told us, it could very well be true. Yes, I mean, really, at this point, we cannot trust anything, I believe, that has been presented here, that Pfizer's data, I believe, there's there's there it points to fraud you know they for example they didn't include that third death why didn't they do yeah. that um i i've you know so i i'm i i'm always i write on what i see the evidence before me going through all the data going through all the reports going through thousands and thousands and thousands of pages and obviously i'm this is an ongoing investigation i, I will still continue to be doing this um and this is just what I'm finding, you know, and, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't come from a medical background, but I, I do have good attention to detail and I, I'm recording all this and writing on it. But it is just so alarming. And and, um, you know, the like the report that I mentioned with the um, the lady with the enlarged lymph nodes, we know there was a study published in Cell that said that the vaccinal mRNA and the spike, the spike proteins, the vaccinal spike proteins remained in the lymph nodes for at least up to up to eight weeks. Um, I also forgot to mention, because I just obviously had limited time and I didn't know how much time you were going to give me, I did another further report on the non-clinical overview uh, of Pfizer's uh, document. Um, so that's also on trial site news. And what's really alarming are the, the, the literally the safety studies that were not done. You know, you had no safety pharmacology studies were done. No genotoxicity studies were done. No carcinogenicity studies were done. And these are novel. These are novel. It's a novel treatment. Um, the, the lipid nanoparticles themselves, two out of the four are completely novel. And we know that these, they, they cause inflammation. There was a study done on mice. This is to do with Aquatus's technology, the, the, the lipid nanoplatform technology um, was, was highly inflammatory in mice. Uh, we know that they, they did these biodistribution studies, but they used the mRNA was encoded with um, luciferase, which was sort of to light up where it was going the body they never encoded it for the actual spike protein um, that's in the vaccine so they do not know and we have this on record i interviewed uh, uh, david david wiseman for trial site news who's been following all the sort of fda those verbat meetings uh, those pivotal meetings where they sort of go ahead and, and recommend the vaccine for young children and infants up to you know you know six months of age where you had uh, I think it was Dr. Gruber, who was Pfizer's rep, who said on record, this is all, and I put this in my interview with David, where he said, where a, 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 a doctor, Dr. Portnoy, is asking a question, how much spike protein is being produced by the cells? And for how long does it, and for how long? How long does it persist? They had no idea. No idea. Those studies haven't been done. It's a sham. It's quite obviously a sham, a complete sham. I mean, there's no other way to explain this. It, there's no way that this is all just a coincidence or mere negligence. They're trying to push through the so-called vaccines. We all know they're not vaccines because yeah. vaccines, by definition, yes. immunize you against a certain yes. disease. They give yeah. you sterile immunity. But in this case, they admit, even the makers of the so-called vaccines, they all admit, no, we don't know if it's... If, no, yes. it doesn't do that. We don't know if it's effective and we don't know if it's safe. Now, yes. through your work, 
because of this FOIA request uh, and the court order, now we know they just didn't care. They just yes. didn't care. They even uh, it to me, it looks like they have been. Uh, trying to hide what's been going on, yes. they're forging the numbers, uh, and uh, and 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 I think this is going to cost them very dearly. I think yes. this is one of the companies that will have to be taken down completely. Yes, I mean it just points to fraud. So yes. if you think about it, all these authorizations that were granted, the EUA and the conditional marketing authorization given by Emma. I mean, what's it based on? It's based on on fraudulent data, yeah. you know, or, 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 or hidden data, or it, it, these gross in, inaccuracies, these anomalies, these, you know, what what's going on here? Um, I I and also observer blinded trial. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, which means that this wasn't a double blinded trial. So the uh, I think the administrators who were giving the vaccine were blinded. Obviously, the participants were blinded. Um, but everybody else was unblinded. And as when it came to potential COVID-19 cases, the team was unblinded. And when you unblind a trial, it leads to a, a, a loss of data integrity, which is really important. When you, when you lose your data integrity, what, what meaning does it have? Yeah. And bias. Sorry, I forgot to mention, you inject a huge amount of bias. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is crucial. Yeah. And and you mentioning about these aren't vaccines. Yes, these are gene therapy products. If you look in the Security Exchange Commission filings for both Moderna and Pfizer, they themselves classify it as such as a gene therapy product. If you look up the FDA definition, the FDA definition of a gene therapy product, it meet it meets it. Yes. Even they know so it. They know it. We know from the yeah. BioNTech. I, yeah. I don't know if it's BioNTech or Pfizer, but it doesn't make a difference. We yeah. know from their own papers that they didn't yes. expect yes. to uh, get authorization yes. for these uh, yes. drugs. It was only possible because they redefined um, the word vaccine. Yes, they That's need to the find way. it to be more, more palatable for the yes. general public to accept yes. it as opposed to, you know, do you want to have injected a gene, a gene therapy product into exactly. your arm? Exactly. Remember the one, uh, I think this is a, a, probably a German, uh, judging from his accent, a German uh, CEO of, I think, Merck, who in a speech which he probably didn't expect to be recorded and then played to the general public, he explicitly said, if it hadn't been for this pandemic, he didn't say pandemic, he said pandemic, people would never have agreed to get injected with a with an experimental a gene therapeutical substance. He explicitly yeah. said so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, no, it's just very damning, all of it. Um, and obviously, I, I just zero in on the evidence that I'm seeing before me and, and just... Uh, you know, I'm just continuing to investigate this, but uh, it, it's just truly shocking. It really is. Yeah. It, it seems, you know, we, we thought we're now pretty close to getting to the bottom of it. No way. We're not even halfway there. Much, much more uh, horrific data will come out, I'm afraid. And what's most disturbing, as far as I'm concerned, is that there's so many people involved in this who are willing to sell their souls to the devil. They will have to pay dearly for it, dearly for it.
Yes, I mean, I just believe the pe- the public have been fed lies. Of course, me, you yeah. know, uh, that's that, that's what it points to. Uh, I don't come from an alarmist background. I, I speak very calmly. I speak on the facts, on evidence, and that I do believe uh, the public have been yeah. lied to. There's no other conclusion. Um, if you if you take all the evidence, I like to say if you if you take the a totality of the evidence, there's no way that these people are acting negligently or that this is a coincidence. No way, no way, impossible. Any jury, one of these days there will be many juries. Any jury will find these people responsible beyond any reasonable doubt. I'm yes, absolutely I convinced. Hope- I hope so. And I just wanted to add, I mean, I um, I interviewed uh, Stephanie de Grey. This was quite a while ago. And I'm just saying she was part of the children's, uh, the 12 to 15 year old uh, mm-hmm. uh, children's, you know, the Pfizer trial for children. And, uh, you know, I interviewed Stephanie de Grey, but who's a mother of Maddie de Grey. Maddie was the, the, the 12 year old at the time who was life-altering uh, adverse events because of the vaccine and you know they're, they're completely there were her her symptoms her her case was put down to the child has anxiety <laughs> or some stomach issues so this is just the level of sliding things sort of pushing them under the carpet uh you know just uh el- eliminating people out of the trial and uh it's it's really truly horrific you mean the child who was sitting in a wheelchair has anxiety? Yeah, anxiety, stomach issues. Jesus Christ. We're coming yeah. for them. I hope so. It's like what they say that someone had a necrosis in the leg and they said, oh, it's psychosomatic. I mean, how's, yes. how's that possible? It's so so crazy. Yes, it's all, it's all in their head, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, this is an ongoing investigation, you said. Uh, we would love to have to. I wouldn't want to hear you again, but I want to know what's going on. Even though it's really horrific, we, we must know what's going on. So we will be very happy to talk to you again. That's great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you both. Thank you for taking the Thanks time. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you, Sonia. Have a bye great bye. weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.